Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What's up, Transit Church? Happy New Year, y'all, everybody. Y'all are quiet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Woo-hoo. All right, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you're here. And uh, New Year, new series. So our habit, our, our, our short habit has been that at the beginning of our years as a church, we look at a few spiritual disciplines. And so uh, we're going to do that uh, this month. Uh, using Psalm 51 as a, as a tool for that. So grab your Bibles, turn uh, to the middle of your Bible to Psalm 51. We're going to read these verses out loud together and then dive in on one particular verse in our time together this morning. If you've got a Bible, uh, obviously open it up. If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the giving table in the back. And obviously, if you have your app, you can open that as well. We're going to read these verses out loud, all 19. Read with me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then we will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we embark upon a new year, first Sunday uh, of that year, and we thank you that you allow us to gather uh, as, a, as the church. Uh, we thank you for uh, just the, the songs that we sing and the words that we can say that acknowledge who you are and, and that offer you praise. God, you are a God that's worthy of our praise. You're worthy of every thought and, and deed that we can ascribe to you. And so we bring you glory, Lord, through our worship today and pray that you would be glorified even in the preaching of your word. Remind us of our great need for mercy today, God, and throughout this year, would you cause us to open our lips that our mouths might declare your praise. That's our prayer. We pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. All right, so we're starting the year looking at spiritual disciplines. Last week, if you were here, Nick uh, kicked us off on that uh, last sermon preached of the of the year, but in that uh, he set the tone for really what we want to do this year in terms of uh, the the concentration of of the hearts of our lives, reading the Bible and and prayer. Now, those are uh, spiritual disciplines, things that we can do to to aid our spiritual walk. And last week, uh, along with that, preaching from Psalm one nineteen, Nick talked about the the benefits of, of reading our Bible. Uh, during announcements, he mentioned uh, the tool that we're using to aid us in that, the Community Bible Reading or CBR Journal. So I just want to echo what, what Nick said and, and everything that he said last week in that you know, there's many tools that, as Christians, we have now, things that are available to us, either in our fingertips, on our smartphones, things that you can buy, books that you can read, uh, but whatever you do, uh, one of the ways that you grow closer to God is by uh, availing yourself to his word. That's how God speaks to you. So uh, if I could commend anything to you as a Christian that you do in 2020, it's uh, take some time, make some time, create a habit around you of reading God's word, because that's the primary way that God speaks to you. Of course, God speaks in many ways. God speaks to us by spirit to our own souls. He speaks to us through people. He speaks to us through circumstances. But the eternal God, the God of the heavens, the way that he has prescribed primarily for you to learn about who he is, is through his word. And so if the CBR journal could be a tool for you uh, to aid you in hearing God's voice and learning more about him, I would commend that to you. As we start our, our foundations class at the end of January, that will be the first thing that we talk about, not just reading the Bible, but how you use, utilize that particular tool to help you uh, in uh, your walk with God in reading the Bible. Today we're going to turn to another uh, spiritual discipline, and, and that spiritual discipline is prayer, and we're going to use Psalm 51 to do that. Psalm 51 is a well-known psalm. Many of you have read it, some of you have memorized it, and it's well-known because it's the personal confession of King David. Uh, on an occasion where uh, he got him some trouble, and not just trouble with friends or family or people that are around him, he got in trouble with God. He did something that he knew he shouldn't have done, but he did it anyway. Most of us turn to Psalm 51 um, 
because the psalmist David in this case helps us know what to do with our guilt, that thing that comes upon us when we know we've done something that we should not do. Uh, and that's a good reason to turn to Psalm 51. Uh, we're going to turn to Psalm 51, except we're not going to focus so much on the, the guilt feelings that we have and what to do with those. We're going to look at Psalm 51 as a guide to our prayer. In fact, we're calling this, this series Praying Like Real People. The Psalms are essentially a counseling textbook where we get to see pictures of real people experiencing real problems in, in a real world, and they exhibit real emotions, emotions like you and I have, joy and sorrow and anger and fear and doubt and suffering and perhaps even hope. The Psalms really are uh, the, the prayer book for us as Christians. We sang a song this morning, that, we sang three songs this morning that are birthed in Scripture, and so the Psalms also are the hymn book for the, for the Christian. This Psalm in particular, like most Psalms, has a backstory. How do we know that? Well, if you look in your Bibles, there's a superscript below the title and before the first words. And the superscript, in many cases, is an introduction to the psalm, the particular psalm that you're reading. Anytime you see this superscript, what the composer, the author of the psalm is doing is he's giving you a little bit of a hint as to uh, what transpired to bring these words about. And in this case, we have a superscript, and this is what the superscript for Psalm 51 says. It says, to the choir master. What does that mean? It means it's supposed to be sung. This is actually a song that David wrote uh, and that he would have sung and that people in, you know, in, in the nation of Israel would have sung because he wrote it as a song. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And that's the backstory. So if you've already been reading with us in our, our journey in the community Bible reading, we've been reading uh, about the life of David in uh, the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Uh, the superscript is referring to a situation that comes up in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and so we've got a few weeks before we get there, but I'm going to tell you about it right now, just to prep your reading in a couple weeks from now. So if we fast forward, by the time uh, this series of incidents happen that the superscript is talking about, it takes place in 2 Samuel. David has already been anointed king over Israel and is functioning in that, in that, uh, that vein of, of, of king. And really, David's story is a Cinderella story. I mean, you can figure, I mean, 1 Samuel is just a, it's a good news story about a ready little boy, the, 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 the youngest of eight sons, the father of, the sons of, of Jesse of Bethlehem, um, who unassumingly became the, the king of Israel. And the way the story goes is David is basically just uh, tending his father's sheep, and because God rejected Saul, the first king of Israel, because of his character problems, God sends the nation's prophet Samuel to the household of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, and among the sons of Jesse, he chooses this young, ruddy lad, David, to be the king. He anoints, uh, anoints him with oil, and for intents and purposes, in that moment, he becomes the king. Now, it takes a couple of years. We don't know, even know, how, know how many years it takes for David to really grow up uh, come to Jerusalem, uh, be involved in the kingdom, become a warrior for Saul and all that, and for, for Saul to, to turn against him. But as we fast forward, we get to this beautiful scene of coronation in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
David uh, assumes the throne for all of Israel, and then God makes this promise to him. He covenants with him, makes agreement with him that, that from David, there would be a lineage that would become king. Not just any king, the king of kings. God promised him, he covenanted with him that from his loins would be one who would come and would be the Messiah, the savior of the whole world. And this Messiah would reign on the throne of David as king forever. And of course, we know that as Jesus. And that's, of course, uh, a long time in the coming. But as the story continues, from this moment of coronation on, it's as if David had all kind of favor. Left and right, God was, God was blessing him. God gave him victories everywhere he went. David was defeating his enemies at every turn. And then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And the Bible tells us that here's what was going on, that David was so comfortable with the victories that his army was winning and the favor that God had given him that David decided to stay home. He sent his army and all of his leaders out against the Ammonites. And the text says... David stayed back from fighting against the Ammonites, and then it says, it happened. It happened. Late one afternoon, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. That's exactly what the text says. What's the it? David was having a leisurely walk on his roof of his house, and in the distance he saw a woman bathing. All right, note to self, man, if you see a woman on the roof bathing, turn your eyes. Note to self, ladies, you should not be bathing on the roof, right? <laughs> Cover it up. So we're not giving any details in this story, primarily because of the discretion of the, the author of, of 2 Samuel. Thank God for him. But more importantly, because this is a shameful incident. And so they're not wanting to... David is, is considered to be a, a hero in the Bible, okay? And so uh, the... Uh, the word of God is, is taking this shameful event and it's sort of reducing it a little bit in our reading. But David basically asked one of his servants, well, who is this woman? He finds out her name is Bathsheba. She is the wife of one of his best soldiers, a man by the name of Uriah. The Bible tells us David took her code word for he was intimate with her and she becomes pregnant. We don't know how much time passed by, but I mean, David was in a pickle. He, he therein had a real problem. And what did David do? He lied, he deceived, and he eventually um, got Uriah killed on the front lines of battle to cover up this thing that he had done with Uriah's wife Bathsheba by getting her pregnant. So here's what the Bible is, is clear about in regards to this story. There's a lot more to it. You'll get to it in our community Bible ring in a, in a few weeks, and you should read that. It's like a soap opera. So David has done a terrible thing. That's what the Bible is making clear about this incident with, with Bathsheba. It's, it's sick. The whole thing is kind of gross and repulsive. Here you have David, God's chosen king over his chosen people. He's supposed to be the good guy. And all of 1 Samuel really paints that beautiful picture of, of this unassuming young rat lad that becomes king. But instead, he becomes the villain. And all seems to go well. Even after David gets Bathsheba pregnant, kills Uriah, the baby's born. He seems to be still incurring God's favor until Nathan the prophet, David's, David's own prophet, comes to him and confronts him about the sin. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, 
that's when we see David respond in repentance. We read these words, I have sinned against the Lord. And so, backtrack. When you read the superscript under, verse, under the title of a chapter uh, uh, 50, Psalm 51, that's what it's referring to. So David wrote this psalm in that repentance after Nathan confronted him. And so from the perspective of repentance, I mean, this psalm is immensely helpful. It, it forces us to acknowledge that we are people that sin, perhaps not overtly like David, but it helps us to know what to do with that sin. We get to appeal to God for his mercy, and then we get to turn to God, toward God, not just in repentance, but in, re, in uh, obedience. And that is our, our good purposes for this particular psalm. Here's my contention, and this is what the, the vein that we're going to take this psalm and the direction that we're going to take it this morning and throughout the throughout the month is this psalm is not just a prayer for, for desperate, guilt, guilt-ridden types who feel like they've done something terrible. This psalm is actually for us, for normal people like us that mess up a little bit, but for the most part are trying to do right and do good in the world. This psalm is actually a prayer for all of us. And that's why it deserves a warning. And I'll give this warning uh, you know, up front, and I won't repeat it over, over the next several weeks of the of us going through the psalm, you know, it would be easy for us to dismiss this psalm because it's kind of on the extreme edge of, of, of what happens in a normal person's life. We could dismiss this psalm and, and hold it out a way away from us as if it doesn't apply to us because we know how we sin and the Bible is telling us how David sins and we'll look at David's like, I'm not doing that. So that... The temptation is to read the psalm as if we don't need it, as if these words don't apply to me, at least not the way they applied to David. And so there's a warning that comes with this psalm. But this really is a prayer for all of us. It's a prayer for real people who know that they can't make it without the mercy of God. And I think that's the big thing that's going to come out of, out of this, this psalm for us. And it's, it's important for us to acknowledge that, that if not for the mercy of God, I think all of our lives would be ruined. Isn't that true? Can, can you say that, and, or at least nod to it? That if not for the mercy of God, there, there would go I. We're people in need of mercy, just like David was. And, and that's why we're starting our year with this series, Praying Like Real People. This is a prayer for all of us. We're actually not going to unpack the entire psalm. We're going to look at four petitions which, which basically means we're going to take four colon, four, four half sentences within the breath of the psalm. I was reading uh, a devotional on the Book of Common Prayer late last year, and I happened upon a morning devotional that uh, took a part of Psalm 51 and used uh, these petitions as a form of prayer. And we're just going to uh, unpack what these petitions are. Look at them on the screen, and let's say these out loud. Oh, Lord. Open my lips and my mouth will declare. There it is. Let's go back. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Second petition, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Third petition, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And the fourth petition, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Here's why I like this particular, um, these four petitions. I, I, I like them because they almost mirror 
what we're doing with the community Bible reading. If you've started into that, we look at a passage of Scripture from the perspective of what is, how, how, how can this uh, help me adore God? What, how does it lend me to adoration? And then what do I need to confess from this text that I've just read, that God's revealed to me? And then what can I give thanks for? And then what are the, the, the cares, the, the requests, the supplication of my heart? And these petitions don't exactly mirror that, but they do kind of, sort of. And so we're going to look at those as we uh, start this. These have really become a daily liturgy for me. These are petitions that you can memorize, and the help is that they're inspired by God. Okay, and so they're going to get into your soul and hopefully uh, be useful, beneficial for you, even if you're not aware of it. We're starting with the first petition today, Psalm 51, verse 15. David says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. It feels weird to start in the middle of a, of a passage of Scripture, doesn't it? Uh, we're starting in the middle, uh, really because that's the part that deals with worship. Okay, And it really gets at two fundamental facts of life that I'm going to unpack here in a few minutes. So a petition like this is kind of an anchor for us when it comes to praying, that we start with adoration or worship or ascribing um, worth to God. And that's what David is doing right here in the midst of this psalm. And really three things I want us to, to pay attention to, to be mindful of in this one particular petition in verse 15. And it's, and it's three things. God's praise, our mouths, and the wonder of it all. We'll start with God's praise. So when David prays the, this verse, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Here's what he's implying. He's implying that this is not praise that he is creating. This is a praise that's going on regardless of what he's doing. This is a praise that he, he gets to join in on. And there's a big difference between those two. The praise of God is not something that's up to him, which means it's not up to me or to you either. It's something that's happening regardless of us, and that's because God is outside of us. We see that in, uh, in Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah 6, uh, verses 1 through 3. The prophet tells us that he has this amazing vision of God. And in the vision, he sees God seated, seated on a throne, high and lifted up. His train is filling the temple. And if you're familiar with this passage of Scripture, go ahead and show it on the screen, please. If you're familiar with this passage of Scripture, here's the, here's the thing that Isaiah noted. Isaiah doesn't portray God as, as sitting on a bench, biting his nails, and he's fearful that and, and waiting for somebody, anybody, to just start praising him. That's not his, 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 his worry. Instead, Isaiah's vision is God is seated on a throne, and above him stood seraphim. We sang about them in one of the songs this morning. Seraphim. Seraphim are angelic beings. If I'm honest, they're terrifyingly beautiful angelic creatures. And each of them has six wings. With two of the wings, they covered their eyes. With two, they covered their feet. And the other two, they flew. I can't even imagine what something like that, like that would look like. Can you? But this is a creature that God has created. And guess what their purpose is? Nothing but praise and adoration and worship and ascribing splendor to God. They do that 24-7. And, and in this particular vision, as they were flying, they were calling out to one another, saying, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I'm so subdued in how they were saying that. I can only imagine how loud, how exuberant, how dynamic their, 
their voices and affectation and their movement was as they're thinking of and seeing the glory of God. I mean, can you imagine? We can't even imagine it. We can't even imagine it. And Isaiah is trying to give us this picture of what he's seeing. And then in verse 4, it says this, this seraphim, their voices were so loud that the foundations of the temple were shaking and the entire place was filled with smoke. It's a Holy Ghost party, like, like one that we've, we've never seen before. And, and I want us to see really two, two things. The, the first is this, this is their purpose in life. This is what these creatures were designed to do day in, day out, ascribing glory to God and, um, and articulating that with the voices that God had given them. And, and here's the second thing. And this is important. When Isaiah sees this vision, he is not thinking that God needs my worship. He, he's not thinking that. He's like, oh, oh, he's letting me see this because I need to join in with the seraphim and lend my voice to what's going on. He, he's not thinking that. How do I know that? Look at what Isaiah says in verse 5. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for." My eyes have seen the King. He's seen Jesus, the, the Lord of hosts. If I had to give a, a description of, of what's going on with Isaiah in this moment, like anybody that sees an angel like this, he, he's terrified, right? In a, in a good kind of way. If you can see an angel and be terrified in a good way, the good way being, all right, I saw the glory of God and I was not consumed. It's a good day, right? <laughs> He's terrified. Isaiah is blessed to see God as he is, full-orbed glory. And in this moment, Isaiah knows that what he's seen of God in that moment is true of God, whether he had seen it or not. God being praised is going to happen even if Isaiah is unaware of the praising, even if he's not a part of it. And that's what David is conveying to us in Psalm 51. David gets it, that, that, that praise is outside of us. God has praise that's happening whether or not our mouths are involved. We've not invented God. We don't invent his praise. God depends on nothing for his being. Instead, all things, all things are dependent upon him. And he's been praised long before we ever came onto the scene, and he'll be praised long after we're gone. Theologically, God exists outside of us. Here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. The Westminster Confession of Faith is a 17th century document. We ascribe it to the Puritans, but really it's for all Protestant evangelicals. It's a, it's a product of the Reformation, and it is um, an orthodox document that, um, that's well-respected in the evangelical Protestant world. Uh, here's what uh, the confession says. God has all of life. It's not going to be on the screen, sorry. God has all of life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through him, and to whom are all things. And he has most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleases. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, 
and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. Now, I know that was kind of thick language, right? Here's, here's, here's what Paul says that might give a little bit more credence to what the confession is saying. And, and really, the confession is just using these words and elaborating on them. Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I mean, I should have just read Paul's right. God exists outside of us. Of course, that gets into the nature and the theology of, of God. I don't want to lead us down that, that rabbit hole, but I do want to point out one particular fact about God and the really important implication of that. It's that God's reality is not diminished by our inability to comprehend him. God's reality is not diminished by our inability to comprehend him. You and I will do that in a heartbeat. We will, we will, we tend to shrink God down to a size that we can fit him into our heads so that we can try and, and understand him. That's what's happening anytime you start a sentence. I can't imagine a God who dot, dot, dot. I can't imagine a God who would allow a, allow a baby to die. I can't imagine a God that would allow me to suffer. I can't imagine a God that would take me a really good person and not, take, not let me go to heaven. We say those kinds of things, or you've heard people say those kinds of things. And when we're talking about God in terms of what we can imagine, here's what we're doing. We're trying to fit God into our own little box. One of the, one of the ways that we talk about this is from the perspective of two different frameworks for how we think about our world. One way is moral, the moral framework. The other way is psychological, a psychological framework. The moral framework has clear lines, and I think most of you in this room would say that you live your life from a moral framework. That's, the, that's what the, the Bible espouses. The moral framework says there is such a thing as right and wrong. There is absolute truth. There is reality regardless of me. But when it comes to the psychological framework, that's where reality and meaning is, is only what's computed in my own head. In this framework, everything orbits around the self, it orbits around me, and reality becomes what I make of it or what my experience has told me is true about life. And the moral framework is completely acceptable, acceptable that God runs the show. That there's things that I don't completely understand about God. Why? Because he's outside of me. He's God. He's God. I'm not. He is who he is. He's holy. I stand underneath him as one of his creatures. But in the psychological framework, when it comes to God, he exists for me. And therefore, I only want the parts of him that are going to be kind of therapeutic. God, if you're comforting me, if you're saying something good to me, if you're like making me feel good about myself, then I'll acknowledge you and like you. If not, I don't even want to hear you. In the world of Psalm 51, the world of the Bible, which is, oh, by the way, the real world, we're getting a moral framework, which means right now, even even really, even if we weren't here in this building, even if we hadn't said or sang anything to ascribe glory to God, that glory has not stopped. It's continuing on. The Bible says even the rocks would cry out if we refuse to praise God, right? And so we've got the seraphim, we've got all these angelic beings, and we've got God's very creation that is ascribing worship 
to him. The whole earth is full of his glory, the seraphim are constantly saying. And that's because God is God. He doesn't need us to be who he is. He's worthy of our praise, and he will be praised with or without you and me. I think that's foundational in David's prayer. That's why David asked God to open his lips so that he could declare God's praise, not start that praise from scratch. He wants, David wants to proclaim what already is, that God is to be praised. And that brings us to the second petition, our mouths. Have you ever given any, like, any thought to why you have a mouth? Well, some of you are thinking, it's like, well, well, physiologically, Jeff, I know why I have a mouth. In fact, after this service, I'm going to go satisfy that, right? David, when he talks about his own mouth, he, 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 he is talking about his own mouth when he's praying these prayers. Okay, this is a personal prayer for David. When we pray this prayer after him, we're talking about our mouths. We're praying like David, oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The question that some of you may have this morning is, I mean, well, why? I mean, why, why would David pray that prayer? Even in the circumstance that he was in, why would I pray that prayer? Why would I want God to open my lips so that my mouth would declare his praise? I think the psalmist give us a lot of talk about the mouth. From the psalmist's viewpoint, typically our, our mouths either speak lies and are full of violence, or they speak truth. And praise God. And a repeated prayer throughout the Psalms as a whole is that our mouths would be full of praise. Psalm 34, 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 71, verse 8. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Psalm 145, verse 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. These verses, I could keep going. Like, there's lots of them. As many of there, as as there are psalms, there's psalms that orient us, that our mouths are made for a purpose. The testimony of psalms is, we pray for God to open our lips so that our mouths declare his praise, because that's why God has given us a mouth. Yes, I know, there are some real important physiological reasons why we have mouths, and there are good things that we can do with those mouths. Here's what the psalmist is committing to us. You might need to eat. You might, even, you might need, even need to say a few words, but there's no greater purpose that you have for that mouth of yours than to ascribe praise to God. God's praise is the ultimate purpose. God's glory and praise is ultimately the reason why everything exists. Here's what they, uh, uh, Paul says in a book that we just finished last year. He says in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink, that's what we do with our mouths, Right? Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul's not negating the fact that we have mouths. God made us with those mouths, and there's purposes for them. But the ultimate purpose is that we would glorify and praise God with them. And that's very practically the case for our mouths, because our mouths can literally praise God. More than that, our mouths can literally declare God's praise. Declare it means to make it known. It means to be emphatic about Um, our articulation of the worth that God has for us. And so when we declare God's praise, we can sing and shout and speak things that are true about God. When we declare God's praise, we can, over our sin, we can declare His grace. 
Over our weakness, we can declare His strength. Over the craziness and the circumstances of our lives, the sorrow and the sufferings that we sometimes experience, the darkness of our doubts, we can declare the truths of God. Why? Because the truths of God come from outside of us, which means it doesn't really matter what's going on with you personally, physiologically, psychologically. When the truth is outside of us, even if our emotions don't line up, even when it feels like everything in your life is falling apart, your mouth can remind you about the truth of God. That's what we do when we declare God's praise with our mouths. And so, I mean, Nick brought this up last week. This is what we do when we take up the Bible and we read it. We speak the praise of God in the Word of God, declaring it with our mouth. And sometimes we have to do that over and over and over again until our heart catches up with what we might be thinking about in our head. Our mouths can declare God's praise like that. That's what they are for. And so there's two fundamental facts. God's praise, it exists whether we, whether we join in or not. We also have our mouths, this physiological function that God has given us, by which, yes, we do need to eat, and he's given us, the, uh, as humans, the ability to speak. But the psalmist, the Bible, the wisdom literature of the Bible would, would come into us that thing is for you to give glory to God. But, but here's the real miracle. It's not that these two things are true, that we have God's eternal praise going on and that he's given us mouths, but it's that God but we would be willing to actually let us praise him. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. The, the miracle is that God would actually receive our praise. If you think about it from the perspective of David and what he had done, David not only lied, he deceived, he uh, orchestrated the murder of a man. And in a sense, David isn't even worthy to utter a word of praise to his God. And, and we're not unlike David. We all have our backstories. Behind every time we pay this petition for ourselves, we have our own sin and failures. There, there are all these ways that Paul would say we have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. How is it that we think that our mouths are even worthy to declare God's praise? But that leads us to our last point. That's the wonder of it all. The wonder of it all. The whole reason it's possible for our mouths to declare God's praise goes back to really the first verse of, of Psalm 51. Psalm, verse, uh, the, the first verse of Psalm 51 is outside of these four petitions that we're looking at, but it, it's where David starts in his particular situation. I mean, David is not just caught between a rock and a hard place. David is under a rock, and the whole world is like jumping on it to like push him underneath the dirt. That, that's probably what he feels like. More importantly, that's the, that's the condemnation that, that he feels at this moment. And, and what does David do? What, how does he start this idea of, Lord, how can I make myself back to you? He appeals to God's mercy. He appeals to the character of God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. In my situation with Bathsheba, as I rule the nation, Lord, I, I, I'm stuck, and I don't even know where to start. And he starts with, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. There is a reason why we, there's a reason why there are psalms. There's a reason why there are prayers that we can pray and 
And among those reasons, at the very top, is that we, have, we serve a God who's a God of, of mercy. In fact, David says he's not just a God of mercy, he's a God of steadfast love and abundant mercy. The steadfast love is a loaded phrase in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. Anytime we read about God's steadfast love, it's not just talking about some generic kind benevolence of God. It's talking about uh, a particular love that God has. They've promised to everyone, not just Old Testament people, everyone, including us that have trusted him in faith. It's a covenantal love. It's love by which God has bound himself in relation to his people, that he calls himself our God, that we, that he invites us to be his people. And here's the truth. It's a love that is not determined by us. We can't buy it. We can't earn it. We can never even deserve it. God's steadfast love is a love that tells us how great he is and how in great need of him we are. And that's why we can trust God and his love. It's not up to our lovability. Did you hear that? God's love towards you is not up to your lovability. Parents, you know this. Think about your four or five-year-old getting into the, the worst trouble that a four or five-year-old can get into. He gets into your makeup mom, or he gets into the cookie jar, or she, I mean, just makes a mess, a, a mess on the carpet that you can't, like, like a shampoo won't even get up, right? And you're really mad. But then you look at that little, that little four or five-year-old face and like the love that you have for this kid, it just like it dissolves the anger and the angst that you have over what they've ruined in the house or what they've done in disobedience to you. And then multiply that times a million. And that's God's steadfast love for you. Think about what David did. Do you think that David could come to God on the basis of his lovability? The Bible says David had a, a, a comeliness about him, but there is no way after lie, lying, deceit, and murder that David can come to God on lovability, the lovability factor. Absolutely not. But none of us can. If we're going to come to God, we have to come to him on the basis of his steadfast love. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible talks about God's steadfast love. She says, it's a never-stopping never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's the love God has for you. The same steadfast love we read about in the Old Testament is what's shown to us in Jesus when he takes our place on the cross and dies for our sin. Paul says it like this in, in, in Romans 5 He says that God shows his love, his steadfast love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. I think that was the moment that David and every other Old Testament saint was looking forward to. They were looking forward to the God that would be a steadfast God to them, and they would give them steadfast love, and his steadfast love, he, gives, he forgives sin. Previous to Psalm 51, David prays this in Psalm 32. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sins are covered. You know, the way that our transgressions are forgiven and our sins are covered is it's by Jesus himself. What does he do? He takes our transgressions and our sins and he absorbs them in himself on the cross. He takes the wrath of God that's due to all of us because of our sin and he absorbs it in himself. 
Jesus dies for us. And the thing that David looked forward to in faith, we look back to in faith. The cross of Jesus is the mercy of God. The cross of Jesus is the steadfast love of God. And it's really the only thing that can bring these two fundamental things together. The, 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 the praise of God and our mouths. The cross of Jesus is the reality that's behind Psalm 51, verse 15. Every time we pray it, O oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth would declare your praise. All right, Jeff, so those are good facts. I, I, I'm with you. I agree. Amen. Uh, what, what do I do with this? What, what do I do with all this information? Honestly, I'm not encouraging you to do anything with it. Here's what I want. And, and every week that we look at each one of these petitions, I want this to inform our praying. When, when, when you are praying this petition in the likes of David, Open my lips, O Lord, that my mouth would declare your praise. Here's, here's what you're saying. You're saying, God, your praise is happening already, and it'll keep happening with or without me. You've got these seraphim that are surrounding your throne, and they are experiencing full of glory. But you've not only created seraphim, you created all of creation. Mountains and hills and trees and animals and even humanity, and we have the opportunity to cry out your praise and ascribe to you the worship that you deserve. All of creation, all of us together, right now, ought to be and should be singing your praise. When we pray this petition after David, oh, oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth would declare your praise. You're saying, Lord, you are worthy of praise and you will be praised. And guess what? You've given me this mouth and I'm not even worthy to ascribe praise to you because of my sin. I'm like Isaiah. I see your glory, and I'm reminded I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm surrounded by other people who have unclean lips, and I'm woefully unworthy to deserve your praise or even to speak it. But the only way that you've given for me to, to speak your praise and to declare it is your steadfast love. And your steadfast love comes to me through the person of Jesus. The person and the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus makes me worthy to declare your praise. So because of Jesus, will you open my lips so that my mouth will declare your praise? Because of Jesus, will you let me participate in that praise? Because that's what I was created for. That's what all of creation was made for. That's why we're all here. God, this praise is for you. It's a universal thing. Would you swallow me up in that praise? Let me join in with the chorus. I want to be a part of that praise. Oh, Lord, open my lips so that my mouth will declare your praise. Translate Church, that's what you mean when you pray these words after David. Oh, Lord, open my lips that my mouth will declare your praise. And I would commend to you, that's how real people pray. Amen? All right, stand to your feet. I want to put this into practice. We're going to pray a short prayer and response. I'll lead us out, and then you can follow up with the congregational response of we praise your glorious name. Here we go. You are God. You are the God who formed us. We praise your glorious name. You are the God who loves us. We praise your glorious name. You are the God who forgives us. We praise your glorious name. You're the God who saves us. We praise your glorious name. You're the God who calls us. 
We praise your glorious name. You're the God who empowers us. We praise your glorious name. You are the God who sends us. We praise your glorious name. God be praised.